There's a very interesting exchange in the play Faust by Goethe. I think I said that right. I had to look it up. Uh, where someone asks the devil or Mephistopheles, who are you? And the devil says, I am the spirit that denies. Another translation is, I am the spirit that negates everything. And I thought that was very profound, very insightful. Uh, the devil being an archetype for ego, delusion, self-deception. Not a, uh, necessarily an entity or an evil force out there somewhere, uh, but rather a deluding force within us. In Buddhism, it's said that the forces or momentum of greed, ignorance, and hatred are endless. <clears throat> and one of the bodhisattva vows is, I vow, I vow to abandon them. But I think it's critical to actually investigate the nature of these forces directly to abandon them. Otherwise, they're running the show. You can think you're doing good and you're completely run by these tendencies, these deeply rooted habits of negation, of resistance, of avoidance. So if we start from the beginning and build it from the ground up, build an ego, build a self apart, we start very early in life with a very innocent, you could say mistake, but even at the, the initial onset, it's not a mistake, it's simply a neurologic process. And that's the experience of I am, meaning I am separate from my primary caretaker, which is often my mother. I'm separate from the dog. The ability to perceive that in a very concrete way is built into our neurologic uh, processes, into our nervous system. Nothing wrong with it fundamentally. Without that, a child, a toddler, and growing into a child probably wouldn't be able to function well at all. May have serious problems with all kinds of tasks and communication and so forth. So it's not, uh, not a problem in and of itself. And it's, a, neuro, it's a, a, a developmental milestone to become self-aware. And at that stage and at that age, it doesn't cause problems. It's quite innocent. But it plants a seed for uh, a lot to be built on top of it. A lot of identity structure a lot of potential for delusion, self-delusion, hiding from ourselves, avoidance, negation. In one way of speaking, you could say that that first movement, and perhaps even before, my sense is actually, it, there, there's a sense 
of wanting to pull back before it even occurs, uh, this, this very clear and obvious and testable sense of self apart. Before that occurs, there's probably a sense of trying to pull back, pulling back from all of the intensity of the sensory experiences of being alive. Doesn't matter, that's just my sense of it, feeling into this. Um, but if you think about that maneuver, that tendency to pull back, pull back from, and then see that that becomes um, concretized or becomes becomes a whole set of processes that feel like a separate entity, that feel like a me, a self. Uh, you can see how far back you have to unwind the system to, f to find that fundamental misperception. And at the same time, this can sound complex if you think about all the layers of identity built on top of that, but at the same time, even in the complexity of the identified adult mind, you can see the tendency to pull back from life, the tendency to avoid, the tendency to negate, being completely interwoven in our, in our entire thought system. It's all over the place, right? We wanna say no to our thoughts. We wanna say no to our emotions or negate them, pretend they're not there. Uh, we wanna say no to other people. As Emerson said, we parry and fend the approach of our fellow man by compliments, by amusements, by gossip. We cover our thoughts up from him under a hundred folds. Him or her, of course. Uh, we're, we're kind of always in the business of um, managing distance. This is all an illusion, there's no distance. But it sure feels like managing distance, judging, this is good for me, this is bad for me, I want more of this, I want less of that. Um, this is where I wanna go, this is where I don't wanna go. This is the way thoughts are structured. All of that maneuvering requires a sense of essentially separation, subject and object. The object being that which you're considering, that which you're contemplating, that which you're judging as good, bad, painful, comfortable, neutral. That's the object, the objective experience. The subject is always the one that gets backward extrapolated from all of that mental activity over and over and over. Me, 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 me. Um, but because the separation is an illusion, this is a dynamic process. There's no step, it's not static. If the whole thing stops, often that's, uh, that's an awakening. Like if the system stops long enough to see that there is nothing out there and there's nothing back here that, that are separate from one another and interacting with one another, then it's, it's actually like a reset. This, this, the system can reset itself and it happens in a lot of different ways. It happens randomly, it happens through trauma, it happens through practice, inquiry. Um, But there's an interesting aspect to this, as I was describing the, the, the objective world that we posit, not just the physical objective world, which we start to see through at deeper stages of realization, but the, um, 
the apparent world of interpretations, judgments, all of that, thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. We're actually engaging an array of thoughts without realizing, again, that we're pulling back into subjectivity by doing that. We're pushing and pulling on the world, out, seemingly out there, up in here. And by doing that, we keep reinforcing a sense of being a self, being a subject back here. And that is intrinsically isolating. I think someone asked in a comment recently, uh, maybe on YouTube, does the sense of loneliness go away? And I said, it, it definitely does. Because the sense of loneliness, the sense of isolation is an immediate result of the illusion of separation coming into experience. Once, once that happens at a very young age, the sense of separation, you're already feeling lonely in one way or another. No matter what your story is, no matter how it plays out in the relative, there's some sense of loneliness. There's some sense of isolation, some sense of there's something wrong with me. Uh, why am I alone? Why am I lonely? How to fix it. But that's so uncomfortable that we often build identity structures over it and forget about it. So many people would probably say, I don't feel lonely. But put them in an environment like this long enough where there's no distraction, uh, they'll start to uncover these deeper emotional experiences and loneliness is a big one. So it's inherently tied, loneliness or isolation, the sense of isolation is inherently tied to the illusion that we are separate from everything and everyone, right? And then we play strange games like becoming obsessed with relationship, right? It's a big one we have to work through in our life. You know, that, the looking for the right partner or we have the right partner, but we want to make sure they see us the right way. And you know, all, the, all the stuff that we do with like romantic connections, this very dynamic, very important feeling part of our life, we often don't look underneath it and say like, why am I trying to manage relationships so much? Well, the reason we're doing it is because that's a surrogate. That's a surrogate for us. It makes us feel like, you know, at some point we'll get it just right and we'll stop feeling lonely, right? But the, there's several errors built into this. One is you think it has to do with another person, right? That person, and, you know, that, and, and even when you do believe it's one person or a set of people, your family, whatever it is, uh, you, you, even if it, things are stable, even if things are the conditions are good around that. You have good relationships um, and you have that, um, that blessing, which is it's great in the relative, but part of you always knows it's just conditions. There, the, uh, one, one change in circumstances and those people could not be there or your partner could not be there. And we know this. So we're always a little afraid and we're always a little alone, lonely and isolated feeling until um, that fundamental sense of separation that there can be separation at all is rectified. With that, um, you could feel anything, but it's more like raw experience. Um, intimacy is, is far more prominent in your experience and it becomes more and more prominent and obvious and uncaused intimacy that's indescribable intimacy with the sound 
intimacy with the uh, feeling of the blanket, the feeling of the dog's fur. Even the intimacy of very mundane seeming objects and experiences, sidewalk. Feeling of your hand on the steering wheel. We don't realize the cost uh, of picking and choosing, of making a value system out of our experience. This, this kind of relationship is super important and this kind of in mundane interaction with the world is, is just not very important to me. We don't realize the cost of doing that and believing that. We do it innocently. We, we do it habitually. No, we never decided to do this. We don't realize the cost until we uh, rewind that far enough and start to feel intimacy with everything, literally everything. But um, now we enter the world of using language in a very strange way because there aren't things when we talk about this kind of intimacy. It, you, you can't have intimacy with a thing because there's no thing out there and there's no thing in here. There's no separation. Um, doesn't mean there's nothing either. It's not a, this isn't a negation. It's, um, it's a stripping away of an overlay of, ex of processing that says that's out here, I'm in here. That's out here, I'm in here. You're you, I'm me. You're you, I'm me. You're, I like you a little more than I like you. You're dangerous, you're safe, you're my lover. You're, you know, that, that, that's what we're doing all the time. We're, we're constantly managing, apparently, relationships. And I say apparently because none of that's even happening. It's ultimately one big distraction. But when that stops happening, we see under the hood and we feel this intimacy that is, it's always been here. It's always been here. We knew it before we, we even started to perceive ourselves as separate. Before we started to perceive I am, we knew it. We knew this kind of intimacy. Um, and it's wondrous. It's sublime. It's very natural. <clears throat> But it's, it's ineffable in that it's not something you can talk about. It's not something you need to talk about. And you, you often find when you try to talk about it, it feels like not right. It's not, something's not right with it, you know. There's a maturity to this, in spiritual maturity, and, and I see the difference sometimes. Sometimes people will ask me early on or, or post in comments, how do I talk to my lover about this? How do I talk to my friends about this that I'm experiencing or that I'm investigating? And my answer usually is look into why you want to. Why do you want to share this? What, there's more to it than you think there is. There's more to your tendency to want to do that. You're looking for complicity. You're trying to turn this fundamental intimacy back into the storyline of me and this other person and what I'm sharing with them. And the mind is very quick with this stuff. You got to be careful with it. Um, at first, because it can really get you down some strange pathways. You can become a teacher of it, you know, when, before you've had any kind of tr true insight. Um, you can confuse yourself, confuse other people. But if you just stop for a minute and go, why do I need to share this, you know? When you touch into true intimacy, <clears throat> if you're able to stay with it, you realize that it's not, you don't need to share it. In one sense, you know it's already the case for everyone and everything all, all the time. Um, why turn it into concepts? Why turn it into meaning and purpose and yada, yada? Uh, there's only one reason, so that you can go up into your head. <laughs> Sneaky. It's a negation, right? All of the thoughts, all of the maneuvering 
of identity. It's a negation of the always present, always obvious, and immediately available truth of this, which does not have parts, does not have separate objects, does not have boundaries, does not have selves and others, doesn't exist in any specific place, but it's also not non-existent. It's neither existent nor non-existent. And it's endlessly fascinating. Like Ramana Maharishi, you could sit in a cave or sit in a dark temple and directly engage this for years and years with people have to spoon feed you because you don't care about eating. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not where you need to go necessarily in this lifetime, but it is that fascinating. It is that intriguing and engaging. And all of this that we see externally that seems like the storyline of our lives and the things we're doing and all that, it's all reflections of it. It's fine, but when we've lost sight and we all lose sight of it from the age of early childhood to sometime in, we're really lucky, maybe late teens, but early adulthood or even later with, with some kind of shift in identity. Um, when we lose sight of it, we start to suffer because then the only thing left, the only world we, we know uh, is the world of negation. We have to negate something to be something else. We have to negate a whole lot to be something separate. So the negation just goes on and on and on. And that process in and of itself is quite fascinating because it doesn't just happen internally. It happens through complicity and it happens externally. To be a successful person in our society, in our um, in the social matrix, you, there's, there's actually a need for people who suffer tremendously, who, who don't have it together in the way you do. Um, There's so many polarities here, and you know it. You know that suffering part of yourself. You can, you, can, you can deny it for a certain amount of time through working hard, being successful, being healthy, all the different things. At some point, it will find you, and that's a good thing. When you come into contact with pain body, and recognize it with, with suffering, your own suffering, and recognize it as such. That's an auspicious moment. It's an auspicious day for you. Um, because you're seeing the whole spectrum. You're seeing, you're seeing the illusion in a much bigger way. The illusion of, it's like a hypnotic illusion of mind identification that requires communication, requires complicity in groups. And this system of mind identification, this ego, um, this ego hypnosis and to be very dramatic and, and even uh, use a metaphor like Mephistopheles or the devil and all these metaphors uh, that go back in history for this that we're talking about. Um, in one sense, they're not that far off. Uh, I remember my grandmother, none of my family is very religious, traditionally, but they all had some exposure to Christianity or whatever. And I remember my grandmother, although she was kind of cynical, but she had lived a really rough, rough life. She, I remember her, she always said, I, I don't believe hell is somewhere you go to when you die. I believe we're, we're already in it. 
but there's there's definitely an intelligence to that um, because she lived a very difficult life. Um, all the heavens and hells are within us, right? Uh, but what is what is evil? What is the devil? What is pain body? I think I, I like how Eckhart Tolle describes this pain body, and that it can go dormant, and that it can activate in the right set of circumstances. I find this fascinating, and I find it true. Um, and I don't think anyone's safe from it. It doesn't have a, this pain body and how it activates. It doesn't have a preference for race, gender, uh, socioeconomic status. It just waits. It just waits for the right set of conditions. And one, a really good set of conditions for massive amounts of violence and, and pain is fear, pervasive fear. I uh, have a friend who, uh, she's German, and her, I think, great aunt, I think passed away not too long ago, but was in her 90s, and she rem she was a young woman during uh, World War II in Berlin. And I asked her, what what was it like? What, what did the common person know about what was happening outside of Germany? You know, like what Hitler was doing? Was it something they knew? Did they were they aware of it? And what did they think of it? What and and the answer was, oh, there was no there was no we didn't know anything about it. It was fear. Everyone was just in fear. There was massive and very deeply pervasive fear. There were fear of, afraid of the Gestapo, afraid, afraid of everyone, right? Um, in, in environments of fear, that's, that's like the place that, that pain body can express itself, right? And we can see that in societies and situations where um, there's instability, there's a lot of fear, there's perhaps violent leaders that can, you know, do 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 the bidding of pain body or whatever but we also see it internally we can see when the conditions of fear arise how do i act how do i go how do i get more unconscious what is that like what does it feel like to be unconscious sometimes it feels hyperconscious it feels like there's something i really really need to do or something really important i need to take care of or put forth or convince someone of um, or do to defend myself, or whatever it is, can feel extremely compelling, but it's typically quite heady. And we can become aware of these conditions. We can become aware of the conditions, internal conditions, under which we're more likely to do something, say something that's not fully congruent with our deeper insights and understanding of life. And fear is a big one. Now, this whole talk seems very meandering, probably. Like, I've been talking about all kinds of different things. But I think it will come back sort of towards the beginning here, where um, when we investigate fear, when we investigate what fear actually is, internal fear, psychological fear, it's really a sort of hesitation. It's a sort of holding back. Um, sometimes it's a negation of our duties, of our, what we feel responsible to do, and we're just holding back from it. Often it's holding back because we don't want to see something or feel something. You know, there's the, the analogy of the door and, you know, the, someone standing in front of the door warning you, do not open that door. Whatever you do, don't open that door. And you may not have opened the door for years. Some doors, right? Some doors we haven't opened for a long, long time because we're just so scared. 
but inevitably when you open the door, it's never what you thought was going to be there. Never. Right. Sometimes it's completely neutral. It's like, what? there's nothing there. No big deal. Nothing. Other times it's quite the opposite. You might find something remarkable, something intimate, something uh, tender, something very surprising, something transcendent on the other side of that door. So maybe all of this is about opening doors in here. And the beauty of it is you don't have to worry about out there. You don't have to figure out which doors to open out there in when we're talking about the awakening process. Just the ones in here. How can I open the door? Emotions are a great way to open the door. If you're feeling an emotion, you might have the door partially open already. It's right there for you. And it doesn't matter the quality of the emotion. It can be uncomfortable. It can be enticing. It can be confusing. But it doesn't matter. The experience of it, the energy of it, the feeling of it, the way it inhabits your body and your physiology right now, that's the doorway. It can be self-doubt, self-hatred, self-denial. We don't want to open the door to these. It's, it's a, it's a, an aversion. We have a strong aversion to opening the door to the feeling of not liking myself, hating myself. Why? Well, because we feel like we're stuck with it. I'm stuck with this self the whole life. So why would I want to hate it? Why would I want to, right? Well, why don't you just get close to the emotion and see what's actually going on there? You might be very surprised what it is. Because as I described at the very beginning of this, what you take yourself to be ultimately is not what is, as my Zen teacher would say, what's what. It's not what's really happening. We're here to investigate what we take ourselves to be. So when this comes right up against the edge of identity, it also comes right up against often the edge of our own internal landscape, our own internal storyline and how that's played out with a physiologic experience of being ourselves in this world that feels emotional. They're one and the same. This is really challenging for some people uh, the, to, to recognize that when I talk about insight, I talk about shifting in identity, when I talk about non-duality, I'm also talking about your own internal exploration in a very intimate and vulnerable way, uh, the emotion body. Because that's the link, the, the apparent link between what seems like a physical body and what seems like your consciousness or consciousness. You have to go through, you have to go down and in and down and through, ultimately, for deep realization or it just won't happen. You, will ha you can have an awakening, you can have a very heady, expanded consciousness sort of experience, but until you go back down through uh, and find what it really means in the Heart Sutra when it says form is emptiness and emptiness is form, until you, re until you fully digest that, and there's no doubt anymore, there's just clarity, whether it's physical, the physical experience of visceral clarity, or it's the expanded samadhi experience of clarity. You realize those are actually not two. They're interpenetrated. Um, 
that's deep and mature realization and thoroughgoing. And then what comes with that is we're not, there's nowhere we're afraid to go. Like Poro, Poro means reindeer in Finnish. She's back there on the stand and her eyes are the void. So she was made by, by an artist who had a very, very, very profound awakening out of the blue in life. And uh, she made Poro and said, Poro, there's nowhere Poro won't go. So we put her in the back of the Zendo to uh, look over all the practitioners. <laughs> mm, yeah, she also made a coyote. She's made some amazing <laughs> sculptures. Um, but you become that, you become that uh, vulnerable explorer. There's nowhere, that, that's true, true courage is vulnerable courage. Has to be. You can have sort of, a, I don't know, bravado type of courage for a while in, with this stuff, but at some point, even that's going to break down. <laughs> like the song 46 and 2 says, you'll be crawling on your belly, clearing out what could have been, wallowing in your own chaotic, insecure delusions <laughs> for a piece to cross you over. So it's going to happen. Um, we've all been through various aspects of that, of course. But it's not over when you want it to be over. It's over when it's over. <laughs> and not until. <laughs> so, to put it all together, we can look into what is it? What is the spirit that negates? And how to reverse that. Or how to hold that, to understand that. Because at some point, with this, you'll even hold the energy of hatred in a very different light with compassion. Can you hold hatred with compassion? It's possible for sure. Doesn't mean act out on it, perpetuate it on others or even on yourself. It means to fully understand it at every level. Addiction is an interesting thing because some of this plays into addiction. We've all, we all have addictions. We all have, we all have propensity for them. Some of them are more destructive, physically destructive of our life and our relationships and work and jobs and stuff than others. But we all have the propensity and we've all had, we've all struggled, right? We all know this. Um, through self-compassion and through surrender, we can break a habit that is very destructive. There are ways this happens, you know, through groups, through AA and all, all this, right? Groups of compassionate but vulnerable and honest people coming together can be very transformative. And that's grace. We realize we did not have control, right? As Paul Hederman says, I, I realized I wasn't management material of my own life. Uh, it's, it's a hard thing to accept about ourselves, but at some point and at some level, we have to accept that we're very limited. You know, we're very, God, you know, bless our hearts we're, and we're trying our best, but we can be self-destructive at times. They're habits. These are habits. 
they, they're powerful. Um, and we need help sometimes. And that help comes, and then grace comes. And with grace, we, we start to develop a sort of wisdom and trust in life that we don't have to run back to, to a habit um, to deal with difficult emotions and, and so that sort of thing. And then we, in earnest, start the, the investigation into emotion, into why in the heck was I running? What was I running from? What was I using that whatever, habit, substance, et cetera, to run from? And then we start to realize, oh, wow, gosh, there's so much in here and it's so intense and all this, but I can actually sit with it. Like, I'm okay with it. I can feel pain. I can feel sadness. I can feel grief. I can feel loss. I can feel anger. I can feel hatred. And this is a deeper level of maturity. Um, look at the, you know, the first part in one sense, like I said, it's grace. It's, a, it's almost a freebie. This part is the part of work. You really have to work through this. It's visceral. It's gritty. It takes time. Um, but you can work through that as well. And then you start to, well, you have an opportunity um, to, from a very surrendered place, uh, you have an opportunity to know the forces of delusion that started the cycles, that, that keep the cycles perpetuating, that, that cause us to want to avoid anything in the first place. Like, why is that even there? And we have access to that. We can feel it viscerally. We know and we understand. But this understanding only comes through compassion. There's a deep and thoroughgoing compassion that allows us to really know this in ourselves and in others. Um, and none of the previous insights and none of the previous learnings that, that precede this go away. They're all still there. They're very important. There isn't, there's always an aspect of grace that we can stand up and walk. <laughs> that you know, we're, we're alive at all. It's, it's kind of a miracle that we have experienced at all. It's quite a, quite a miracle. And we're always subject to emotional experiences. We're always subject to the potential for loss, loss of loved ones, loss of health. All of this is going away, loss of life. Uh, and, and then underneath all of it, uh, or perhaps intertwined uh, with all of it, is this profound, sort of wisdom, call it prajna wisdom, that simultaneously knows none of this that we're talking about, none of the struggle or the storylines, the narratives, none of it's actually real in, in, in the way it feels. It's not, it's not real in the way it feels so real. Um, there's, there's a place that none of that touches. And, and it's here. This place is always here. And we know that. We can't unknow that. And there's no need to deny the relative aspects of being a human being. And then they really start to interpenetrate and become one and the same. So a, a true unity uh, of insight, a true unity of realization occurs um, in deeper stages of realization, the unity of, let's say, absolute and relative. But you can't skip, can't skip the steps. And that's really important. Can't skip the emotion work. 
can't skip the insights, including the sort of final insight into the self-structure. A lot of people, well, some people want to skip that one. That's, it's very interesting. Some people, it feels kind of obvious and other people really does not feel obvious and or desirable in any way to lose a self. <laughs> um, can't be desirable, I suppose. There's not anything you could want out of that, but I don't know why. For some people, it, it just seems like it's kind of obvious that that's, that there really never was one. For other people, it feels like, no, I'm, there's something here that's like, I want to keep and that's me. And, you know, um, but even that at some point it gets dispelled. And it's all natural. This is all a natural process. It feels to me, at least it feels more and more natural as it plays out. It feels more spontaneous, more simple, more vulnerable, more honest, more obvious, intimate and also kind of sublime, sort of endlessly surprising in one way, um, mysterious. So we could ask, so, so to leave everyone with a potential question or koan or something, if, if you are interested, we could ask, what am I negating? What am I denying? And then if it, you identify it, how can I reverse that? How can I accept? Or how can I first accept the denial itself? Understand it. Maybe I can feel into where it started, how it started, why it started, and be okay with it. And we can penetrate the denial uh, through acceptance of the denial. And then we might be surprised that whatever it is we're denying was never a problem in, in, at all. This is how it is with emotion. Emotion can be so seeming intense and problematic and we have to figure out all the strategies and learn to just rest in the emotion. And, and at some point it's like, the emotion was never a problem. I just, there was just all this resistance to it that I couldn't see. And I don't know where it came from. I don't, I don't really know why it was there, but that was what made it seem like a problem the whole time. No emotion is a problem and never has been. <laughs>